Today I would like for us to examine one of the lessons that is associated with the days of unleavened bread. And that is that God has a plan for our deliverance. In Matthew chapter 13, in verse 33, Christ says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. That, by the way, is not during the days of unleavened bread. That's the rest of the year. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was, till all, uh, till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. God had a plan from the very beginning. That's alluded to right here. That There were things from the foundation of the world. Prior to the holy days, Satan seems to attack God's people with a special zeal. We have trials that seem to cluster and around the holy day season, particularly in advance of those, as he tries to get our mind off of the great meaning and hope that these days contain. You know, when these trials and various obstacles come upon us, they catch us by surprise. And yet, what we see here about God's Word, that God had a plan from the very foundation of the world, from the very, very beginning. Let's go on over to Revelation chapter 13. We'll see that expounded on a little further. Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to look here at verse 8. It's in the context. It's speaking about the beast. And it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, verse 8, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Again, here there's this reference to a plan that God had from the very foundation of the world. And at the very beginning, the foundation of the world, There was a plan that God had that involved the uh, sacrifice of a Savior. We see that mentioned right here. Let's go back now to Genesis chapter 1. We've seen that God has a plan, had a plan from the very earliest beginnings. You know, as things sometimes catch us by surprise, it's important that we realize that God is not taken by surprise. God is not caught off guard. We may be, sometimes frequently, but God is not surprised. Here in Genesis, we have in Genesis chapter 1 the account of creation. Let's notice as we look at this, God's intent, God's, uh, from what's revealed about that from the very beginning. You know, we have here the account of uh, 
the recreation, what took place on the creation week. Let's notice in verse 11, uh, this is of the third day, um, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass and the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind. Then in verse 12, uh, the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind. The tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. This phrase, according to its kind, is repeated again and again. Going uh, forward in verse uh, 21, this is now the, talking about the fifth day. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. Then on down in in verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. So we see this phrase, this according to its kind, repeated again and again. It's mentioned ten times here, describing God's creation. To make it clear, you know, God didn't repeat things because He was at a loss for words. He's repeating it for emphasis so that it's crystal clear. You know, that there was order. They didn't reproduce after another kind. They were reproducing after their own kind. There's a very important message then that, that this lays the foundation for. In verse 26, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, he created them. So at the very beginning, God created man after His own image. That God's original plan from the beginning was that God was going to add to His family. We see that clearly indicated here. That there was a distinction in God's creation. You know, the others were were animals or plants, and they reproduced after their kind. And we see that God was reproducing Himself. We see that very clearly spelled out here at the very beginning, that God had a plan from the beginning. Let's go forward to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. In chapter 2, picking up in verse 5, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. Now the word translated little here 
And the Greek word brachos refers to time. It's a little while lower. Or for a short time, we are lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him... For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. God's plan from the beginning, that he was going to reproduce himself, that he was going, his intent was that he was going to add to his family. That plan involved a Savior. That plan, we can see by turning back to, um, let's turn to, to John 17. We'll notice something about God's desire and His plan for the kind of relationship that we were to have with Him, the kind of relationship that He desires. In John chapter 17, this is a passage that we read just recently at the Passover. We're going to notice verse 11. Christ says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. God's desire, reflected here in in Christ's prayer, is for that sort of intimate relationship that we might be one with Him that we might be one with Him, that there wouldn't be a separation between us. From the very beginning, this was God's desire, to have that kind of relationship with members of His family. That oneness, that of one mind, Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We've seen what God's plan was. Now let's go back and, and see what happened. In Genesis chapter 2, God gave Adam and Eve... Instruction, verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the parameters were set. He was told to stay away from this one particular tree. Then going on into the next chapter, we have the account of the serpent. Verse 1, it was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of, of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not Surely die. So Satan arrives on the scene and immediately causes confusion. Contradicts what God says. The woman was deceived. She took of the fruit of the tree. She gave to her husband Adam. And with that bite... Mankind entered into bondage. Mankind was then separated from God. That special relationship, that oneness that God desired from the very beginning. You know, let's, let's notice down here in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know, what a tragic picture. What a sad story. You know, here is an opportunity to walk next to your Creator in a beautiful garden. And here they heard Him and they ran and hid. You know, imagine, God certainly was not surprised, but imagine, you know, the, the, the emotions, the thoughts that our loving Father in heaven must have had as he witnessed that and saw that. Let's notice here the consequence in verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed carabim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, from this point, they had cut themselves off by transgressing. God's very clear instructions, they had cut themselves off from Him. Their choice. And that choice had ramifications and consequences for the entirety of mankind. And that path, that road, those choices have led us to where we are today in society. And by rejecting God's way, choosing a different way. They have been cut off from the tree of life. But God's plan from the beginning 
was that he was going to add to his family. He was going to reproduce himself, that he would have that type of oneness with members of his family. His plan was not thwarted. You know, as as God sat on his throne and he saw Satan come up and, and lie and deceive Adam and Eve, God didn't think, oh, shucks, what am I going to do now? Uh-oh, plan B. God was not surprised. We read in Revelation about the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God had a plan from the very, very beginning. And although Adam and Eve here chose a course that disqualified them, God had a plan. Let's go to Exodus chapter 1. God had a plan that would allow for the deliverance of mankind from bondage. His plan was not thwarted by Satan, by our adversary. Let's notice... um, Actually, at the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 24, Joseph here is at the end of his life, and he says to his brethren, verse 24, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So at the end of Joseph's life, he gave instructions to his family. He told them that God would bring them out of there. And that when they did were when God did come and deliver them, that they were to uh, exhume his body, his remains, and bring them, uh, bring him with them. Let's notice now in, in Exodus chapter 1, in verse uh, 7, the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go out, up, out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children. They were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. 
You know, the Israelites, uh, as the Egyptians began to enslave them, it, we're, we're told that they dealt shrewdly with them. They weren't turned into to slaves overnight. They were, they, they were tricked and they were brought into slavery. And we're told that it was grievous. That it was grievous. And they cried out, as we heard in the sermonette, that they cried out for deliverance. They were made to serve with rigor. They had hard bondage. Very, very difficult. Let's go on down to Exodus chapter 3. In verse 7, God is speaking to Moses here at the burning bush. And he says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God says he knows their sorrows. You know, when we're going through difficulty, sometimes it can feel like we're going through it alone. And yet we're never really alone. You know, here they were in, this, in the midst of this hard bondage. And God says, I know their sorrows. That He was intimately aware of what was going on in their lives. He wasn't out of touch. He was aware of and He was... His timetable was moving forward, and, and he was at the point of introducing himself, taking a more active role in their lives. Verse 8, So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression from which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that, he may bring my, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." So God had a plan. God was going to take them to a, a land that He had promised to their forefathers. God was aware of the great oppression that they were enduring at this time. God was going to deliver them from that bondage. They have here, Moses was given this promise of deliverance. You know, there were a lot of, of, of details that were yet to be filled in. At this point, they had been promised a deliverance. They had been promised freedom. But it hasn't yet come to pass. But God go, goes ahead and, and provides even more detail. Uh, notice what he says in verse 19. 
But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." You know, here are the Israelites, they're oppressed, they're afflicted, and they're crying out because of their harsh burden. And what they're not aware of is God's plan. And God has a plan for their deliverance. And as God begins to reveal that plan initially here to Moses, he tells them, you know, Pharaoh is not going to be excited to hear you come and say, let my people go. In fact, he's not going to do it. Not by a mighty hand. You know, Pharaoh is not going to turn loose easily. This is going to be a battle. And I'm going to win. He says that he's going to uh, strike Egypt with all my wonders. God's not going to hold anything back. This Pharaoh is going to be a you know, a, a very tough individual. God also says one other thing here. You know, the Israelites, they're, they're wanting freedom. They're wanting relief. God has so much more in mind for them than just freedom and relief. One, He's going to take them to this beautiful land, this land of great abundance, so much more abundant than the land they're in now. And not only that, when they leave, he says you're, they're going to plunder the Egyptians. You know, this is, would certainly be more than the Israelites could even comprehend. Their cry is for relief. You know, relief from their oppression, relief from their burdens. God has in mind to not only relieve them and grant them freedom, but he's going to send them away wealthy. You know, they're, they're going to receive back pay. Back pay. You know, for the generations that went before them. The generation that leaves Egypt was going to leave very wealthy with a high hand. You know, here all the Israelites had in their mind was, we need some relief. This is hard. And God's plan was for so much more. Remember Psalm 23? David says, "My, you anoint my, my head with oil, my cup runneth over. You know, so many times God will do that and make our cup to run over so that there's not room enough to receive the great blessings that He's ready to pour out upon us. You know, it's a question of when his timetable is. You know, it's not a question of what his desire is for us. 
as a perfect and a loving father, he delights in doing things for his children. In helping them and rewarding them and and guiding them. But he does things for our benefit. You know, as he sees the long-term view. You know, God had this uh, plan of deliverance, and so he, he reveals to Moses part of this plan. He gives Moses these promises of deliverance. Let's notice in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13. Notice what Moses asked God. He said, uh, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? You know, we begin to get a little bit of an inkling of how far the Israelites have fallen at this point. And when they're... When Moses was going to come to them and tell them, you know, the, the God of your fathers has, has come to me and his promises, they're going to say, okay, what's his name? That they were familiar with the Egyptian gods. Let's notice in chapter 5, in verse 1, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So this really wasn't a, shouldn't have been a surprise. You know, that Pharaoh did not know the name of, of uh, did, did not know the God of the Hebrews. That Pharaoh was not uh, going to let the Hebrews go. God had, had told Moses that earlier. But it was interesting that Moses anticipated the Israelites would have the same question that Pharaoh had. Who is this, this God that's going to do this? You know, God introduced himself in a way that was absolutely unmistakable. God began by, he told Moses here that he was going to strike Egypt with all his wonders. So God began by abasing the gods that were worshipped in the land. Through the, the plagues, each one successively, God destroyed Egypt's pride and power. God destroyed the pride and power of Egypt. The various gods that the Egyptians looked to, were shown as empty, were shown as void, were shown as, as impotent, unable to, to come to the occasion, unable to resist. God, uh, through each successive plague, demonstrated that He was the creator of heaven and earth that He was the Creator of all that exists, and all that exists stands at His command, that He was able to move it to accomplish His will. That His power was not relegated to a, a certain little narrow niche. 
you know, the, the Egyptians with their a plethora of gods, each god had its own special area, its own special domain. And this is where this god worked, and this is where this god worked, and each one had its little job. It was foolish. God controlled everything. And he demonstrated that through those plagues. The Israelites felt the, uh, the, the first three plagues. God got their attention. And then from that point forward began to show that he saw that there was a distinction. That God placed a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And God's plan for the Israelites was at this time for their deliverance. Let's go forward to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, when uh, after the tenth plague, when the firstborn throughout the land was slain, as the death angel passed over, finally the, the, the Egyptians had had enough, and the Israelites were thrust out, and they were able to ask of the Egyptians for uh, articles of silver, articles of gold, and they received this great abundance from from the Egyptians, and they went out with a high hand. Now, so much more than they had uh, could have even hoped for. They were looking for relief from a daily oppression, and they got complete freedom. And they got to, to leave with great wealth. And so God then gives the instruction in verse 21, the Lord uh, Exodus 13 and verse 21, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So God led them. He directed their steps as He led them out of Egypt. God has a plan for our deliverance. Not only for the Israelites of old, He had a plan, but He has a plan for our deliverance, and ultimately for the deliverance of all mankind from the bondage of sin. You know, there are a number of examples and, and, and stories in Scripture of various ones that desperately needed God's deliverance. And we can see time and time again, God has intervened to deliver His people. Remember the cry that the Israelites had? It was almost like a chorus line. Every time they would get in trouble, they would murmur and complain and, and, and you know think about the great food that they used to have in Egypt. That they would uh, remember the, the good days, if, if there was such a thing. They would ascribe to God <coughs> that perhaps He had brought them out here to just die. 
Had he brought them out here to, to kill them with hunger? Had he brought them out here to, to kill them with thirst? They would ascribe all sorts of sinister motives to God. And yet, we've taken a lot of, of, of time here to review God's plan from the foundation of the world. A plan for a relationship with us. A relationship with that, that intimacy, that oneness. A relationship where we're not cut off and apart from. A relationship that will ultimately lead to us being able to see Him as He is. Let's go to Esther, the third chapter. The book of Esther contains the story of, again, the Israelites, and this time they again need God's deliverance from an imminent threat. And yet there's a contrast, something that I'd like to uh, take note of as as we look at this uh, story of God's deliverance, again, for the Israelites. In Esther, uh, the book of Esther, the book opens with a uh, big feast. And King Azarias uh, got drunk. And he commanded his uh, queen to come in and perform. And she refused. And so his uh, counselors advised him, you need to make an example out of her and put her away. And so he did. And then they realized, you know, little time is going to go on and, and he's going to remember the good days with Queen Vashti. We need to find him a replacement. And so they did. And Esther became queen. And breaking into the story now in, in uh, Esther, the, the third chapter, uh, we're told about uh, Haman and how he had been advanced in front of the king. He had risen in rank and in office. And as as Haman went around, everybody would bow down to Haman. He was a very important official. In verse 5, When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. Now, here's a very small-minded man. (laughs) You know, a very small-minded man. Here he's a person with a great position. Everybody is paying him homage, and there's one guy that's not. And boy, he can't think of anything else. This is the epitome of small-mindedness. Verse 6. But he dis- uh, So Haman was filled with wrath. This, by the way, was his undoing. Uh, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Azarias, the people of Mordecai. So he realized that he 
probably wouldn't be able to get away with just killing Mordecai, but that if he set his sights a little larger, and then it would maybe be a little easier to accomplish. Quite the, the wicked plot, but uh, so he makes this proposal to the king with trickery and, and, and fools the king into going along with this plan. So uh, verse 12, the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's uh, satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script and to every people in their language. In the name of King Azarias, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. So, uh, under the force of, of law, here goes forth this wicked decree from, from Haman under the force of, of the king's command. Uh, verse 13, the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. So um, the couriers went out and hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. So this wicked plot is then published throughout the entire kingdom. All the various uh, languages that were under his realm, they all received this command that on the appointed day the Jews were to be annihilated and all of their possessions taken as plunder, essentially as a reward for any who would go and slay them. You know, what a wicked, wicked plot. In chapter 4, in verse 1, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Notice here they're in trouble. And notice their response. They're crying out to God. They're humbling themselves with fasting. That's quite a contrast from uh, the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt being thirsty and, and, and moaning about how this is just some wicked plot to, to cause them to die of, of thirst. You know, here is a very different approach when they are in trouble. So Queen Esther sent uh, clothes to, uh, to Mordecai, and, and he refused them. He, he kept on his, his sackcloth. And so she asked, what is the meaning of this? And so uh, he relayed back uh, what had happened. Verse 10, uh, 
Esther sends return word back to, uh, to Mordecai. All the king's servants, uh, so Mordecai had asked her to go in and make supplication before the king and to plead for the people. And so as Esther declined, she's telling Mordecai, I can't do that. And she explains why. All the king's servants, verse 10, and the people of the king's provinces, I mean, this is known far and wide. This isn't some palace secret. Everywhere, everybody knows that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go in to the king these 30 days. So she explained why she could not go in and make intercession for her people. That to do so would, would be to, she would be killed. She, uh, this is as she's explaining it, because that was the law. The king would have to, to hold out the scepter to save her. He would have to intervene to save her. But notice Mordecai's answer to her. Verse 13. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. I want to call your attention to Mordecai's faith. You know, Mordecai, just like the rest of them, is at this point under a death sentence. You know, the, the, the time of his execution has been appointed already. Him and all the other Jews. And yet, Mordecai had given instruction for Esther, you need to go in and, and deliver this message to the king. And she said, no, I can't do that. Mordecai, notice his response. You know, if you don't do this, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai didn't know exactly how God was going to work it out. But he knew without question that God was going to deliver His people. He knew that. That God's plan did not call for the Jews to be wiped out at this time. He knew that. And it was just that simple. That because he knew that God's plan... For His people, His chosen people. Then with regard to this specific obstacle, He didn't know exactly how it was going to work out. He just knew that God was going to deliver them. And perhaps it would be this way, or maybe if not, it would be another way. But there was no question about whether or not there was going to be a deliverance. You know, His... His message and his attitude of faith is one that uh, Esther responded to. And she asked for a fast to be proclaimed for the Jews, that they would, uh, she and, 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 and her attendants were going to, to fast, and they were going to, to fast for three days and three nights. And then at the end of that fast, she was going to take her life in her hands and go before the king and make intercession. 
You know, it's a, a fascinating story. We saw just in the beginning of the verses we read about how Haman had been promoted and everywhere he went people were bowing down and paying him homage. Here's this very important official. You know, he went one day from being at the, the very top to falling ever so quickly, ever so far. Queen Esther went in. The king did hold out the scepter for her. And he asked, what What do you want? I'll, I'll give you anything that you ask, up to half the kingdom. And she said, my request is for you and Haman to come to a special banquet of drink that I have prepared. So that sounded good to the king. So he and Haman showed up. They had this uh, this, this feast. And he again extends this this uh, this offer, what? Tell me whatever you'd like, up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she said, well, if it pleases you, come back tomorrow night and I'll have another fast and then I'll, I'll make known my request. Well, Amen, he just went home and told his family uh, about everything he had and how important he was and, and how rich he was and how there was this private banquet for only the king and one person, and he was that special person. And so he was just gloating and gloating, filled with his own importance, and yet he, he made the comment to his family that, you know, all these things are like nothing as long as Mordecai won't bow down to me. <laughs> you know, the essence of small-mindedness. <laughs> He had every possible, you know, the only thing missing was the kingship itself. And yet, just there's this one guy that wouldn't smile at him when he walked past, and it just ruined his whole day. Well, that was his undoing. They came, came back in that second night, and Esther had prepared that feast. And so the king asked, you know, what would you, what do you request? Verse 3 of chapter 7. Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. So, uh, verse 5, King Azarias answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Boy, he is incensed. Who would even think such an evil thought? Verse 6, Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is the wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen, and the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. He was very perceptive. <laughs> he realized, this is not good. Verse 8, When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? <laughs> As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So that was the end of Haman. 
Haman was hanged on the very same gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Mordecai was the one who had the faith to realize that if God doesn't save us this way, he will save us another way. But God will deliver his people. He will not allow his people to be destroyed. What a tremendous examples we have in Scripture. You know, again and again, God making it clear these things have been recorded for our benefit so that we might read them and take heart and realize that God promises to deliver His people. We're not in this alone. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. God promises to deliver us, but there's a part, there's a role that we play that is very important. One of the parts that we play is is embodied here in these days of unleavened bread. In Exodus chapter 12, in verse uh, 15, God gave instructions that seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Down in verse 19. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, and all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. God makes it very clear that uh, all of the leavening was to be removed, was to be purged. Not just purged from their diet, but purged from their houses. It wasn't that they could just lock it up in a cupboard and, 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 and not use it for a week. They had to purge it to get rid of it. We understand that what God was after, He was using a physical symbol. Something that requires action on our part to teach a very important spiritual lesson. What God was most concerned about was that we would learn this spiritual lesson. That this leaven, which is a type used here as a type for sin, be removed from our lives. Not allowed to coexist with in a small amount, but that a little bit can take over and multiply exceedingly. That it must be removed completely. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll notice... New Testament instruction regarding this. Dealing specifically with the the lesson here behind 
uh, the physical actions of, of removing leaven and, and eating unleavened bread. Verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, recognizing that, that the leaven here is used as a symbol of sin, that a little bit left left in place, a little bit left in place, can take over a life. You know, if we allow sin to be in, in just this little area of life, we'll remove it from all the other areas that everybody else can see, but this little area here we'll keep. It's not a big deal. You know, that kind of rationalization can keep us from reaching our potential. That it's something that must be removed completely, that a little bit leavens the whole lump. We're told to, to get rid of it all. That we are to be that, you know, living the, the, the new life, Christ living in us. You know, we're told to keep the feast not with the old leaven, not, not with the old approach, the old mindset, the old habits, the old motivations, the old approach to living, but with a new approach. You know, that we are to live, and as Paul said, yet not I, you know, but Christ that lives in me. That that's the approach that we're to have with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That that's what God is looking for. So at this time, in particular, our mind is focused on a special way on examining ourselves and making sure that, that our, not only is our houses are physically free of leaven, that we first have to identify it and then we remove it. That the same thing is, is taking place in our lives spiritually, that we are trying to identify the spiritual leaven. We certainly can't remove what we can't identify. That we have to identify those areas of sin in our lives. And as we identify them, then with God's help, we can remove those from our lives. You know, our part involves removing the sin from our lives. Sin is what cuts us off and separates us from God. If we're going to have that intimate relationship that God has desired from the very beginning, then we must put that sin out of our lives. You know how sad it was that when God walked there through the garden, you know, those that were made in His image ran and hid. You know, they were cut off in that way by their choice. 
You know, sin is what cuts us off and provides that separation between us and God. And as we make a special effort at this time to identify those areas in our life that separate us from God and put those out of our lives, we're able to have a closer relationship with our Father in heaven. A closer relationship. Let's go back now to Exodus chapter 13. In Exodus chapter 13, we're going to uh, notice another aspect of our part and that, w- that we must play. God promises deliverance, but there are things that are required of us. We must put sin out of our lives, which serves to separate us from God. We must put that out of our lives. But then we must follow Him. We must follow Him. We read earlier here at the end of Exodus chapter 13 about how the Lord went before them by day in the pillar of cloud and by night in the pillar of fire. You know, this uh, cloud by day, what a great blessing. You know, here they've got this long journey and it's hot. And here's that cloud, that shade. You know, any, any of you who've worked outside in the hot sun know how wonderful it is when the cloud passes over you. The temperature drops instantly. What a great feeling of relief. They had that. And at night, you know, they had that pillar of fire. What an impressive sight that must have been to look up at night and see, you know, the visibly, the, the physical sign of God's presence right there. Right there. And no matter what difficulty they were going through, there He is. He's there. You know, that that they weren't going through those obstacles, those hurdles, those problems. They weren't encountering them alone. We're told that God led them in this way. Verse 21, He went before them. So they were led day and night. Whenever they needed to move, this pillar of cloud by day, fire by night, it showed the way. They didn't start walking and and then the pillar of fire caught up. It moved and they knew, time to move. And they followed. He led, they followed. That's very important to remember. He leads, we follow. Now, we often... Being, uh, we, we often second-guess God. We kind of, when we're, we're confronted with a problem, with an obstacle, we figure out a solution. We kind of write, as it were, a script. This is the part God's going to play. He's going to do these things. And this is the way it's going to work out. And as you think back in your life, you can recall that, uh, you know, Normally, God doesn't follow the script that you've got prepared. You know, He intervenes. He delivers. But His script is different. 
And afterwards, we can look back and think, wow, I never saw it coming that way. It, you know, it, he intervened. He delivered me. And yet in a way that I never would have imagined. You know, brethren, I think each one of us has had that experience personally. And as we look through Scripture, we see that experience described again and again and again in the lives of of the men and women whose stories are told. Down in Exodus chapter 14, God uh, went on to describe for Moses the route that he was going to take them. And Moses was told uh, why, in essence, Moses was told why he, God was taking him on this route. Uh, chapter 14, uh, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may turn and camp by Pihiroth, between Migdol and the sea opposite Baal Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. So in this, God lets Moses and the Israelites know. He gives them a little bit of insight ahead of time. Here's the the route that I'm going to have you take. And here's the consequence of that. Now, we're familiar with the story, so we don't want to read all of the details. But you can imagine that if they were here with a map, kind of plotting the course, it would look like they kind of made a wrong turn. God told them ahead of time, this is the way I'm going to take you. They've got this pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, leading them so that there's no mistake. Yeah, this is the spot. And yet, if you were just plotting it on a map, it looks like God got lost. You know, this isn't the way. God told them where He was going to take them. This is the destination. And this is the way that I'm going to bring you. You know, the Israelites had their sight on what was all around. They saw physically the various obstacles that they encountered. But they didn't look up. They didn't look up and realize that those obstacles that are obstacles for us, you know, mountains, oceans, those aren't obstacles for God. What is it that poses an obstacle for God? You know, it's a rhetorical question. We all know the answer. There isn't anything. It's an obstacle for God. That God has to scratch His head and say, how am I going to, you know, how are we going to fix this? God had a plan from the very beginning. God's not taken by surprise like you and I are. The Israelites, uh, sure enough, word got back to Pharaoh. Here's where the Israelites are. He thought, oh, what have we done that we've let them get away from us? This was our workforce. Let's go get them. And so he and his chosen chariots went down there with his elite forces. 
And the Israelites saw them and were just overwhelmed. They cried out, let us alone that we may... Uh, Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word which we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians, than that we should die in the wilderness. You know, what a... Just, you know, what, what a remarkable... Uh, it's like a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. <laughs> what a remarkable thing, to, you know, message to have for God. You know, why did you bring me out here? Uh, he, here he has demonstrated his intervention through these ten wonders that he has stricken the land of Egypt with. They have been given their freedom, been given back pay for previous generations. And here they are, and they're lost. God's not. But it's important to remember, why did they go this way? It looks, you know, put yourself in that position. Imagine what it would have been like to have been there. And physically, they're trapped. That was simple. Everybody could see that. They were trapped. But there's a contrast between the approach here and the approach that Mordecai had. When we read in the story of Esther, Mordecai realized, you know, God is going to deliver his people. And either it will happen through Queen Esther or it will happen some other way. But he will deliver them. And yet here the Israelites... They don't have that approach. You know, they, they have not remembered God's uh, intervention in their lives to that point. Moses uh, said to the people, verse 13, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You know, when you're in trouble, I don't think there are any sweeter words than these. Be not afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You know, there are times when we all uh, in our lives are in a situation where we realize that's what we need. And God promises deliverance for His people. God desires to have this special relationship with us. Our part is that we must put sin out of our lives. And we must follow Him. When we ask God for guidance and He guides us, and we encounter an obstacle, it's the same thing that happened here with the Israelites. They were crying out for relief. God guided them. They saw another obstacle. Then they got mad at God. Well, why did you bring me here? God had a plan. It didn't stop for the Israelites at the Red Sea. God didn't say, uh-oh, you turn. No. 
God had a plan. And the, the seed did not pose a problem or an obstacle for him. God, God doesn't have the limits that you and I have. God leads us like he led them. Sometimes in a way that maybe doesn't make sense along the way. God's Word is a lamp to our feet. In other words, it guides us one day at a time. It doesn't really show us what we can expect next month. It shows us what we can ultimately expect. But the details along the way, we have to trust in His guidance. You know, there are times when He makes it clear. But in verse 4, of Exodus chapter 14, he makes it clear why he has taken them on this circuitous route. Why did he take them in this odd way? Why didn't he go a different way? Verse 4, Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his armies, and the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. God guided them on this route for His glory. For His glory. He could have taken them an easy way. Anybody with a map could have done that. That, that wouldn't have been specially to God's credit, to His glory. But by taking them in this way, God did something that was to His glory. Something that would be retold from now until, you know, from that point forward until Christ's return and probably beyond. God leads us sometimes individually in our lives in a way where uh, it can lead us sometimes, it seems like, into a trial. And yet, if we keep in mind that if we are really following Him, then there's a purpose. There's a purpose behind it. And He leads us sometimes so that He can make Himself known. That He can uh, make those obstacles disappear. To His credit, to His glory. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and verse 28. This is a good verse for us to keep in mind, particularly when we go through trials, particularly when we are thinking of our need for deliverance. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That's us. As long as, as we uh, serve God, obey God, follow God, then the obstacles that we face along the way, God is going to make those turn into something good. He's going to, to be able to, to uh, take what would otherwise look like defeat and turn it into victory as He did for the Israelites, both at the time of the Exodus and also at the time of uh, 
of Esther. When Esther besought for herself and her people, the king couldn't reverse his decree, but he uh, gave a, another decree for the, for the Jews to be able to protect themselves and to plunder their oppressors. And so the, what had been appointed as their day of execution turned out as uh, many of their enemies were slain. God was able to, to take what looked like certain defeat and turn it into victory. It provided for His glory, pointed to His credit, His glory. Brethren, God has a plan. His plan was from the very foundation of the world. His plan for all of mankind. God knew in advance of our need for deliverance. Not only with uh, the original sin with, uh, of our first parents, but also our, our need for deliverance throughout time. Deliverance that the Israelites needed at various times. The deliverance that you and I need. God knew that. God has a plan for that. God makes that deliverance available to us. In Romans chapter 6, we're told of this deliverance that's available ultimately for all of mankind. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's plan from the very beginning was for you and I to be a part of His family, to be able to see Him as He is, to have that oneness that He enjoys right now with Jesus Christ, between Jesus Christ and God the Father, that we would have that type of relationship with Him. And these days that we are in the middle of right now, look back on God's deliverance of the ancient Israelites and picture the deliverance of mankind from the bondage of sin.